Welcome to the third episode of the Deep Space Podcast Leadership in Space series. I'm Kristen Kapovic, and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, Jamil Castillo. We're with the Coalition for Deep Space Exploration, a space advocacy group based in Washington, D.C. What does it take to be a leader in a visionary field like space? Throughout this series, we're interviewing some of the key people guiding different generations of professionals in space exploration. Hi everyone, Jamil here. Today, we are very excited to welcome Robert Kirby to the Deep Space Podcast. Robert is a former NASA astronaut and a retired U.S. Navy captain with over 35 years of operational and industry experience in aerospace and defense. He is currently the Senior Vice President for Space Capture at Maxar Technologies. During his 23-year naval career, Kirby served as a naval flight officer amassing over 3,000 hours in numerous aircraft and spacecraft. During his time as an astronaut, he flew three spaceflights and completed seven spacewalks. He also served as a spacecraft communicator and in various positions in the NASA Mission Assurance Organization, in the astronaut office, and at the Johnson Space Center in NASA headquarters. His industry experience includes positions at Ares Corporation, Raytheon, in Northrop Grumman. Robert, welcome to the Deep Space Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. To get us started here, can you tell us a little bit about Maxar and what you are doing in space? Yes, I can tell you a little bit about Maxar. Maxar is kind of unique in that, uh, one, we produce a lot of space hardware. Uh, we have over 90 satellites, communication satellites, and uh, geosynchronous orbit as we speak. So uh, we do a lot of that kind of work, but we also do um, a lot of remote sensing at Earth. And chances are, if you've looked at a satellite image online in the last uh, few years, it was taken by a Maxar satellite, because that's what we do, um, including providing that data, that imagery data to numerous um, online sources. So we do both of those things. We build space hardware and we produce imagery of the Earth from space. I wanted to turn it over to you and your background. How did you decide that you wanted to fly aircraft and spacecraft? Was becoming an astronaut always part of the plan when you entered flight school or was that a decision that came later in life? Oh, that was actually something that came later in life. When I was younger, I, I grew up like uh, like most people my age during the Apollo era and saw the first people step foot on the moon. And that was very, very interesting to me, but from a different perspective, because my mother was a chemistry teacher. So um, I was very interested in the science and the engineering behind uh, their trip and how it got them to the lunar surface. So I really didn't think of myself um, as ever being an astronaut at that time. I thought of myself more as somebody who would go along, come along and help them design spacecraft and or aircraft that would uh, take these explorers to, to those heights, but not actually be one of those explorers. So I'm a very, very fortunate that I had that opportunity, and that uh, that idea actually came to me 
when I was in test pilot school and we took a field trip to the Johnson Space Center. And I met a wonderful woman named Kathy Thornton who gave uh, a talk to us, my class, my test pilot school class, and told us about her space flights and her upcoming space walks and what was involved in being an astronaut. And then she came to lunch with us and she sat across from me during lunch. And the more I heard her speak, the more I decided that when I grew up, I wanted to be like her. So um, I was very, very fortunate to have great uh, mentors back at this pilot school who advised me on how I would go about doing that kind of thing. And uh, I was also fortunate to be selected in my with my first application to the astronaut office. And, um, and you know, you've already talked about uh, the different things I did while I was in the astronaut office, but, uh, but I've, I consider myself quite fortunate to have uh, those experiences in my background. That's great. And I like when people tell me that they got this call later in life, which is my story too. I also love to hear when people tell me stories about wanting to go into space, into the space field earlier, but it's always encouraging to hear when successful people in the sector talk about getting started later in life. So thank you for sharing that. Well, and, and that's one of the great things about being in the space industry. Like now I work for Maxar and one of the, um, although I talked a little bit earlier about what we do in space, we also are a part of human space exploration in that we are now building the power and propulsion element for the gateway that will orbit the moon in a few years. And uh, we are also a part of that to learn all the things that we need to learn to explore even deeper into the space frontier and hopefully at some point to help someone put those first footprints on Mars and the things we'll learn from uh, building Gateway and operating Gateway and also development of uh, vertical solar arrays or surface entities on the moon and then hopefully on Mars, all of that learning will go into not only putting that first astronaut or those first astronauts on Mars, but also helping them survive there. So uh, we're very, very much looking forward to playing our role as Maxar in that great journey, I should say. And I am very excited about playing my role at Maxar in contributing to that because, like I said, that's what my real dream was as a kid, was to help enable people to do deep space transportation. And knowing, and, and knowing that uh, Maxar is going to be a part of that gives me that opportunity now. I want to expand on that whole idea of exploration a little bit and get a little bit philosophical here. You know, I would say we live in an increasingly risk-averse world. And as you know better than anyone else personally, human spaceflight is inherently dangerous. Can you talk a little bit about why you believe it's important that the United States continues to pursue human space exploration despite the risk? 
Well, because although, you know, we have that inherent desire past the next heavenly body, I mean, that, that's one reason, but also because it helps us learn more about life here on Earth and learn more about our own bodies and where we came from. So I think it's really, really important that people understand that we don't just do space exploration uh, for the sake of exploring. We also do it to help make life better here on Earth because it enables us to observe how our bodies respond to new environments and also to learn more about the entire solar system and where this Earth came from and how it was formed and things like that. So the research also leads us to a better understanding of life here on Earth and also makes us solve very, very difficult problems that have corollaries very often here to, to problems, I should say, that we have here on Earth. So that is, those are a couple of reasons why I think it's important for us to explore in space. Thank you. Yeah, we that's definitely some of our core messaging here at the coalition and the main reason why we exist that you you express that very well. So what advice do you have for younger people who want to be astronauts or who want to work in space field? Well, the first the first thing I would say is everyone needs to keep in mind that the role of astronaut is just one role that needs to be filled in the future the exploration of space. There are numerous ways to contribute. And ast being an astronaut is only one. And I'm not trying to discourage people from wanting to be astronauts because obviously I thought it was uh, extremely enjoyable, extremely rewarding, a very rewarding experience in my mind. Um, but I will tell you that to be successful in space exploration, we need all sorts of people who are interested in all sorts of things. We need medical doctors, we need plumbers, we need electricians, we need janitors, we need <laughs> lawyers, we need contracts people. We need people with all sorts of skills to make this endeavor successful. And, and as I used to tell my mother, every time uh, I would go out to that pad, I would always make sure that she knew, because she was always worried about my personal safety. I said, Mom, this is the only thing I've ever done in my entire life where there are visibly thousands of people looking out for my personal safety in real time and and those thousands of people are required to make this happen and make it happen successfully and so i never ever want to to um to discount their role in making space exploration successful could you describe for us your leadership style and as a follow-up to that do you have any advice for aspiring leaders? I would say my uh, leadership style is very collaborative. I'm 
as I tell people who I work with, the one thing that I am absolutely certain of, that I know without question, is that I do not know everything. I would love to. <laughs> that would be a very, very nice perspective from which to view the world, but I don't know everything. And um, I think that probably one of the most important things that any leader can do is to um, admit their weaknesses and shortcomings. And then once you've done that, you can surround yourself with people who make up for those shortcomings. And that more likely than not will ensure that you will make good decisions and um, that you will have the right team assembled to handle the inevitable crises and contingencies that will come up uh, during your tenure as a leader in whatever capacity that is. So I think it's really, really important for all leaders to, to you know, if you will, give themselves a reality check, i.e. no one does, no one on this earth does everything well. So once you can determine the things that you don't do as well, you can find those people that do those things well and surround yourself with them so that as a team, you accomplish the goals of the organization. Do you find that there are any ways in which being a leader in the space industry is unique? Um, I think it's unique, and 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 I think it's a you know all leadership positions are unique, um, not only because of the environment, the immediate environment you find yourself in, like in for instance in space, we have a pretty unique intersection of policy and governmental regulations and, and will and technology and people and uh, things like that. I think that it, because all of those things, all of those aspects of, I should say, space exploration are operating pretty much at the limits all those things, the limits of technology, um, the limits of policy. In other words, we're trying to uh, get our, our leaders in government to, to make policies for things that may not have been done before. So that makes it somewhat unique. The technologies are unique. Um, People are very unique. You have a a, a tremendous mix of um, of uh, doers, thinkers, and um, regulators and uh, leaders in all sorts of different ways. So, in that way, it is unique, and it is a very difficult and challenging path to navigate. But um, as we said earlier, it's one that's worth navigating. So Robert, you have been on seven spacewalks and three and three shuttle missions. Could you expand on the topic of leadership style and tell us more on how critical it is as an astronaut to be able to make decisions 
but also to closely follow instructions when you work in an environment like space. Well, I was I was pretty I was pretty blessed in that my background is is um, is being a naval officer, and I think being in the Navy very much prepares you for surface for service, I should say, as an astronaut. And the reason I say that is because as a naval officer, they make it very very clear to you from day one at the Naval Academy that the expectation will be that you can go into any situation, understand the maneuvering space that you have, i.e. what the boundaries of your authority are, and then act within those boundaries and make judgment calls and smart decisions. Um, and that comes from a very long tradition of naval officers and commanders being sent across the, you know, over the horizon with nothing more than uh, what they had on their ship and being expected to make the right decision once they arrived, wherever they arrived. And in whatever scenario or situation might arise. So I think that uh, being a naval officer was very, very good, very, very good training ground for my eventual job of being an astronaut and, and having that same kind of thing so that when you were outside on your spacewalk, you could very quickly assess the situation and make, uh, and based on the resources you had at your disposal and your knowledge, your technical knowledge of the spacecraft system and your own suit, um, make a smart decision and execute something that would be in the best interest of the organization and of the rest of the team. Robert, I wanted to ask you a question that we've we've asked all of our guests on this series, but um, reflecting on President Kennedy's famous speech where he, he says that we choose to go to the moon not because it's easy, but because it is hard. You know, we often say in the space community that we need to do hard things. And I think it's pretty evident that you've made a career out of doing difficult things. I wondered if you could talk about this a little bit in the context of leadership and how leaders often have to make hard decisions and motivate the people under them to undertake difficult tasks. What do you personally think the value is in undertaking difficult things and expecting them and the people that work with you, whether that's in space or on the earth? Well, I think it's pretty evident that uh, if you're used to doing very, very hard things, that, uh, that you're probably more adept at doing the easy things, if you will. I think uh, doing the hard times, it's kind of like in sports. You know, they always tell you to practice hard. And if you do, the game is easy or easier, I should say. So I think that's true here too. If we're doing the hard things, once contingencies come up or the unexpected comes up, we'll be able to handle. And so I think it's very, very important to do those hard things um, so that when the unexpected arises, we're prepared. I know you touched a little bit on this earlier, but could you elaborate on who inspired you in your life and who mentored you in your career? Well, a lot of people inspired me. 
um, you know, I was very, very fortunate to have a chemistry teacher as a mother. So, so from a technical aspect, uh, you know, I've been learning science and engineering my entire life. Um, but some of the um, more prominent mentors that I've had are my lacrosse coaches and football coaches, mostly my lacrosse coaches and lots and wrestling coaches growing up. Um, my teachers, uh, some that come to mind when you ask that question are all of my German teachers. They were, um, they were absolutely incredible. I, uh, each and every one of them, I always think about them when I think about, um, you know, who inspired me. And I think probably the thing that was most important that they taught me, um, each one of them, Professor Kreisiger, uh, Dr. Kosnick, now Dr. Alderson, and Frau Belofsky, I think they taught me the importance of communication, uh, which sometimes we forget to mention when you're getting a technical education. Um, when you're getting your engineering degree, they are very, very quick to to explain to you and make it very clear to you that you have to be technically competent. But uh, sometimes what they forget to tell you is that if you cannot communicate that technical competence to someone else, it, it, it is relatively useless. <laughs> and, uh, and that was something that I learned mostly through taking foreign language is the importance of being able to communicate and communicate effectively. I like that your answer has educators at the center of it. It just goes to show how important teachers are in our lives. Yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> that <laughs> is an understatement. I, uh, I, um, like I tell people all the time, I thank my lucky stars that I had, uh, I was surrounded by really, really um, good and caring educators, my mother being one of them, obviously. So uh, I'm very thankful of that. I think we would be remiss if we didn't ask you, do you have a favorite memory from your time as an astronaut? Oh, my favorite memory was, um, I, I had the misfortune, <laughs> sorry for the misfortune, right, uh, of uh, being uh, getting my food contaminated on one of my uh, spacewalks. But the good thing about that was that I got an entire day pass of about 45 minutes to hang out in the sunlight to make the contamination off of my suit and just watch the world go by. And uh, that was an incredible experience. Um, although I, um, I always wish that the, that the mishap had not happened, I'm very, very thankful for the time to just sightsee on the spacewalk, because if you're truly doing your job out there, um, that opportunity never comes. Uh, but for me, it did, um, through, like I said, uh, an unfortunate event, and that is, uh, an ammonia leak, but it led to me being able to watch the world go by for 45 minutes, 45 absolutely awesome, incredible minutes. 
Well, well, that sounds like a positive way to look at what, what, you know, could be a scary situation. I think a lot of people don't realize as well just how regimented your time is an astronaut when you're up on station. They, uh, you, you guys have a lot of work to do and stay very busy. I think I think that wraps up our questions, but we've just we've loved having you here today. We want to thank you. We appreciate you sharing your insight and all your your rich experience with us. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I love talking with you guys, and uh, I hope you have a great rest of your night. We would like to thank Robert for being with us today, as well as our listeners for following us. Stay tuned for future episodes of our Deep Space Podcast.